Tonight's talk is on using attention to regulate anxiety and fear, and boy, have I been using that this week. Today I meditated for two hours just uh, using some of these tools. So there's two settings for attention. One or two forms of attention, I should say. One form of attention it determines on what you focus your awareness on and whether you focus your awareness at all. So that form of attention can be either really spotlit or can be like a floodlight. You can focus in on an object and separate it from everything around you or you can expand your awareness and take in an entire scene. When you go into a party and there are people dancing, there's music, there's lights, you probably first become aware of the gestalt, the setting, the context, the whole environment. And that's your right hemisphere and that's your floodlights. It's like in the theater where you see the entire stage. And then you probably go into your spotlight and look for specific individuals that you might want to talk to or interact with. And that's left hemispheric and that is something that emphasizes and makes you more reactive to specific stimuli or specific objects or people or places. That's one way that attention works. It can focus attention or it can expand awareness to an entire situation and essentially not contract awareness. And the other way that attention works is it kind of mixes how much, what's called interoception, how much you feel your body, how much you see the world around you, and how much you hear your thoughts. So that's interoception, exteroception, and cognition. And in most of our lives, we are balancing those three factors. Now, the first kind when we're focusing attention, that determines how much emphasis we give upon a thought or a person or an object. If you see a shiny new gadget you want, you might focus attention on it to try to push yourself to, to uh, bring it first and foremost in mind. But very often in life, what we're using our attention to do is to regulate or deactivate how important things are to us. And there's a bunch of different ways we learn how to do that. The most common and probably the most unsuccessful is we try to suppress things. If an unwanted memory or if you see your ex at that party and they're there and they're walking around and you want to do anything but look at them or there's somebody, you're having an argument with your roommate and they're there, but you don't want to pay attention to the fact that they're there, but still your mind keeps going back. You can try to push them entirely out of awareness by essentially focusing on something else entirely. That's called distraction. The problem is that 
very often, as Dan Wegner, the great Harvard psychologist, showed, um, trying to keep something out of mind requires so much cognitive effort that it backfires and it makes the thing we're trying to keep out of mind become more and more and more present. So trying to suppress something almost invariably doesn't work. And yet, ever since we're children, we try that trick of not seeing in the hopes that something will go away. It's deeply ingrained in our behavior, even though it doesn't work. Now, there are two other ways that do work, but they're far harder. They require some skills that we need to develop. The first is we can go back and forth between something that is unpleasant and triggering to something that isn't, that makes us feel safe and makes us feel secure. Go back and forth. And that requires a couple of skills. It requires good working memory. But it also requires the ability to pull your attention away from the trigger, the, the thought you don't want to think too much. Like, for instance, suppose you get noticed that you have to move in a year. Well, nobody wants to think about that every moment of the day. So you want to be able to pull your attention away from that and bring it to something else, like you've always found a place to live or a reflection that makes you feel secure or reflections on all the people who come to your help if you need to look for an apartment or you just might want to reflect on uh, your practice and things that make you feel secure. And then you go back and you acknowledge the trigger and back and forth. And that doesn't suppress the trigger, it actually, though, deactivates the stress considerably. So when I have something that's really weighing on me, um, you get to be my age, and you could have just uh, a practice in and of just dealing with worrying about mortality in your body and your health, but there's also other things you know, money, relationships, you get the idea. So if I try to push everything unpleasant that pops up out of my mind, good luck. I can tell you it doesn't work in my experience. So what I do is I go back and forth, but that requires a lot of skills. It requires practice, because whatever I'm pulling my attention to that's calming will not be as dramatic, as exciting, or as important to me as the threat. The brain is set up to really focus on threats. So if somebody you hear is saying something unpleasant about you and you try to think about all the people in your life that are kind, the problem is that the threat is going to get much more of your neural attention and it's going to require a lot of practice to pull your awareness over to reflections of gratitude or feelings of connectedness. So the other way, of course, is balancing the way we feel with the way we think with the perceptions of the world around us. And if we do that well, we feel that we're a part of situations. Cognition, our thoughts, isn't too loud. It's just there enough to give us sometimes good advice. But and then there's also a mix of what's happening around us. So I can see you, but I also can feel my breath. 
I can feel that my, tummy, my stomach's a little tight because I'm anxious and the muscles in the back of my neck. And I can also hear my thoughts, which are generally like, shit, I hope this isn't too boring and it's hot. So if we get that mix right, then we can feel that we're part of the situation, that what's happening is real, and that we have what's called agency, that we actually not only are there and present, but if you feel your body and you see what's going on around you, then you feel that you can have some kind of an input or an influence upon what's going on. So when we're regulated, the mind moves back and forth between this spotlight attention and then open awareness. So right now I could like just get a feeling of how much energy you have. Probably not very much, even though the air conditioner's on, it's hot. It's at the end of a hot day. But I take in the entire room and I get a sense of the gestalt. And then I focus in and I pretend that I'm making good eye contact, but I'm sort of doing that. I'm looking around. So that works. When it works, it makes us have a sense of the environment, but also be able to relate to specific people and get a sense of, um, you know, if we're being understood, etc. If you get too spaced out, that's called um, hypovigilance. We stop looking, we stop taking in anything, we sort of fog out. It's a form of depression, and it makes us feel that we can't have any effectivity, we can't be involved. On the other hand, if we begin fixating on people's facial expressions, that's kind of even worse. That makes us hypervigilant, and it makes us very reactive. Now, you might think that much of our lives that our brains are working optimally and that we have a good mix between feelings, thoughts, and external sensations. But you'd be wrong. Turns out two great neuroscientists, Matthew Killingsworth, Bruce Gilbert, I think that's his name, Harvard did a famous study called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And they found that half of the time we're in what's called default mode network, which is where we are unaware of the external setting around us almost completely. We have minimal body awareness and we have lots and lots and lots of self-centered cognition. And it turns out that those, that 50% of the time is when we are the least happy in life. It doesn't matter what you're thinking about, whether you're thinking grandiose thoughts about how lovable we are, or more likely fear-driven thoughts about what other people think about us, or what's going to happen to us, or do we have enough financial resources, or whatever it is, the chances are the moment we actually abandon awareness of the world around us, and the introception of the way our bodies feel, the chances are that stress is going to follow because we're completely, one, vulnerable to the outside world, and historically the way we're set up is when we stop paying attention 
it's called when we're not in task positive operation, we're set to become tense and guarded because we're allowing, we're saying to uh, the part of the brain, the parietal lobe that monitors for threats, we're saying all of your operations are now going to be done unconsciously. And so to do that, it gets tense and it gets tight. If you ever notice people when they're lost in thought, they can get into these weird body shapes. So we get tense when we're in this lost in the clouds setting, but also we become less and less aware of the body. So we have no ability to keep track of how tense we become. The Buddha said that there's some big ones to look out for. There's four things that capture our attention. The first is pretty obvious when we're in pain or when there's something that makes us feel addictively really good. That's kind of obvious. The second is when something interferes with our routines. I don't know about you. I have a morning routine and when something gets in the way I become grouchy and and it fixates my attention and it becomes difficult to let go of when I you know, essentially I go to the refrigerator and I have made my iced coffee the previous night but all the, the soy milk creamer is gone. None of you drink soy milk creamer. You have no idea how addicted I am to that stuff. <laughs> so, but the, the vast majority of the kind of thoughts that hook us into default mode network and leave us completely out of balance so we don't feel our bodies and we don't feel or become aware of the world around us is thinking about the way the world should be, views and opinions, and thoughts about ourselves, especially if you want to know the magic recipe for suffering in life, I can give it to you right now. It only has two ingredients. Thinking about yourself and speculating. You put those two together and there's no end to the amount of misery that you can cook up for yourself. <laughs> I've tried this. I know this to be true. Anybody who's ever had depression will tell you that the combination of thinking about things like, oh, what do other people think about me? That can, that's, a magical in, that's a magical torture chamber in and of itself because you'll never know. You'll never know. And even if you ask them, you won't believe what they say and what they think about you could be changing all the time anyway. Or what's going to happen to me in the future? Forget about it. So... Uh, unregulated what can happen when these factors become really, really uh, out of control or when there's a traumatic situation is we could experience what's called depersonalization and derealization. Depersonalization is when there's not enough awareness of your inner body sensations and so you no longer feel that you're present in an experience I'm sure we've all had that time in life where we've gotten broken up with or fired from a job or had somebody tell us some shocking information 
and you know because you're staring at the person who's telling it to you and all you can think are no this isn't happening that you stop feeling your breath your body your stomach the solidity of your incorporeality is completely gone and because of that you start to feel this out of body like you're no longer there and when we feel that we don't feel we can even act we feel like things are happening to us but we can't do anything so the key of being able to have any effectivity in life and being able to intervene on our behalf and take an action in a shocking situation is to return to the body now the other thing that can happen is called derealization if you are hyper fixated on your breath you're having a panic attack and all you're aware of is the the fast shallow breathing and the hair in the back of your neck and the shoulders tighten and you're aware of the thoughts I'm not going to be able to get out of here I'm not going to be able to get out of here then you're not going to be get, getting enough exteroception in information about the world around you and you'll start to distort reality people's faces will look bigger distances will become greater you'll have a kind of a fish islands has anybody had any of these okay good i got this worry that i was talking about shit that nobody had ever had and they were like what is he's completely <coughs> insane all right so there are real ramifications when we don't <coughs> monitor how we're using our attention we can wind up lost in thought and not and when we're lost in thought we not only are not aware of the world around us but we also very often even lose awareness of our body it causes default mode network and and important information gets lost what people are saying gets lost we no longer feel a part of our lives and if we get into that too often when we get difficult triggering unpleasant information about work a relationship the world friends we won't have the skills because remember the two skills we need to regulate or really the three skills we need to be able to either one expand awareness so that we're not fixated only on a thought or a perception or we need to be able to go back and forth between a trigger and something that doesn't trigger us or we need to be able to keep the breath the body and the world present so that we don't get too trapped in the dramas of life so it requires attentional balance keeping the body aware not allowing the mind to become magnetically affixed to a trigger so that we can go back and forth and this is what meditation helps us do in the buddha's teachings there's both uh yoniso manasikara and there's a whole teaching about the buddha said throughout your life practice and when you're not meditating practice pulling your attention away from the most unpleasant or threatening person or situation and bring it to the person object sensation that makes you feel safest so that you've got that skill of going from threat 
to security. Don't allow your mind when you're walking around just to fixate wherever it wants because it will go due to a literally a ingrained through evolution called negativity bias. We give four times the neural weights to threats than we do to anything that is beneficial. So to train the mind not to give into that, we need to practice just simply going back and forth. But in meditation, what we do is we practice the other skills of one, we develop our concentration. Two, we train ourselves to go from whatever is painful in the body to sensations that feel pleasant, like the breath, and then back into the pain, and then back into that which is pleasurable, so that we're not trying the impossible, which is to get rid of pain, but we're also training ourselves how to limit the amount of suffering that pain and unpleasant thoughts cause us. And finally, we, in mindfulness, that part I just said was concentration. In mindfulness, what we do is we practice expanding awareness. So we're not getting rid of the trigger. The trigger is still there, but now it's just a very small part. There was a famous teaching by the Buddha where he said, if you put a teaspoon of salt into a small teacup, the teacup is the, that water with, with water in it, of course, <coughs> the teacup becomes undrinkable because it's, it's become salt water. But if you put a teaspoon of salt into a reservoir and then dump, dunk that cup into the reservoir, you can drink it because it's so diluted. So that's what we're doing. We're diluting through a process called atamiyata. We're diluting the attention to the trigger by bringing in every sensation that's available. We're hearing the fan, the sounds from the street, the sensations of sitting, and yet, oh shit, yeah, there's the fact that there's that depressing information about work, or the fact that my roommate and I aren't talking, or the fact that I'm having a fight with my partner, or the fact that, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pay that bill. So I hope that was a good introduction to tonight's practice. Find your most comfortable seated position. sit down with you too. So closing the eyes and find a really just comfortable seated position where you have good balance. 
balance starts at the top of the head or it could start at the sit bones but generally what we're looking for is alignment which means the head shoulders and hips essentially are on the same plane So we'll take three breaths just to start our practice together. I like to start the practice this way. So take a full in-breath through your nose and lift up if you'd like your shoulders. And then breathe out through the mouth and drop. Yeah, that was nice. Let's take a second in-breath and pull in the belly. And then relax and breathe out. And then a third breath, squinching the muscles of the face and any additional muscles like buttocks or fists or toes you want to squinch and then relax. So to develop concentration, we're just going to start by selecting what's called an anchor. An anchor is something that holds your attention. The key to an anchor is that it's something that's recurring on its own unless you're using a very simple metaphrase then you have to put a little bit of effort into that but if you're using for example your breath or sounds You just receive the sensations. You could also use just the other sensations of the body, the feeling of clothes and sitting on the ground, contact sensations.
You can use the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Now, if you use the breath, at first you can start with a nice full in-breath and then long out-breath, sometimes counting up to five or six, keeping both very long and smooth at first just to develop a little ease to make the breath very pleasant. So what's going to happen is a thought of some sort will come along and it will probably be more interesting than the breath or sounds and it will pull your awareness away. You won't have your anger anymore. Just like in life where a dramatic thought or concern or worry will come along and pull us entirely away from other sensations. So all we do is we gently, whenever we realize we've been hooked We simply unhook ourselves from the thought, bring attention back to the anchor, and simply feel good about our practice. There's no room for frustration or judgment or criticism. There's no room for impatience in a good, healthy practice. And while they'll 
crop up, just set an intention to cultivate what really works, which is kindness, compassion, patience, care. If it's really difficult to stay with the breath, just count. One on the in, two on the out, three on the next inhalation, four on the next exhalation. And when you get to five, count back down, four on the out. Or an old practice is just to think the word boo on the in breath and do, boo do, do on the out. Or you could even use a simple phrase. Breathing in, may I feel happy. Breathing out, may all beings feel happy. Breathing in, may I feel peaceful. Breathing out, may all beings feel peaceful. Breathing in, may I live with ease. Breathing out, may all beings live with ease. Using whatever phrases and words are resonant to your heart.
So now that we've developed some of the ability, hopefully, to stay a little bit with an anchor, for the first skill, see if you can locate a sensation in your body that's uncomfortable. It doesn't have to be that which raises the level of qualifying as a pain, but just some sensation that if nothing in the body announces itself, then something that is otherwise present, a good choice would be the sound of the fan. And then find in your body an area that's very neutral and not too uncomfortable, displeasurable, a sort of normal, mundane area could be the palms of the hand, your right hand. And practice taking three breaths, paying attention to either the uncomfortable sensation or the sound of the fan. And then move your awareness for the next three breaths to the area that is neutral, like the palm of your hand or the forehead or some other area. And all we're going to do for a few minutes is move back and forth between the sensation that wants our attention and another sensation to allow us to slightly regulate our attention.
so for our next practice, bring to mind a thought that involves some degree of speculation, something that could really grab hold of your attention. And we're going to practice allowing this thought to be there, but also bring into awareness the sensations of the body breathing and the sounds of the world around us. So, for an example, try to go through a list of the favorite places you'd like to go on a vacation. Or bring to mind an unpleasant conversation with someone and how you'd like to work that through. And while you have the thought in mind, though, practice not going into default mode where you lose awareness of the body and the sensations around you. So while the thought is present, just give it just enough attention to know it's there, but also know that you're breathing in or breathing out. Know when the fan is loud or soft, when there are sounds from the street.
And finally, for the very last exercise, just allow whatever thoughts want to float into your mind, but practice holding all the sensations that are present, atamiyata. So, suppose you have a thought about what to eat for dinner, or events of the day, or any other thought. Just allow that thought to be there, but just keep in awareness everything else that's part of this present experience, the feeling of being, making contact with the ground, buttocks, thighs, crossed legs, making contact with each other. the feeling of heat in the body, light flickering behind closed eyelids, the sound of the fan again, the body breathing, the more spacious, open, roomy, the mind, the more the mind is like the sky or like that proverbial reservoir, the less any painful reflection can cause harm. So we're nearing the end of the meditation. Just reflect for a moment that during this practice you harmed no being, you exploited no being, you got into no conflict with any other being, 
You didn't use up any of the world's resources. In no way did you contribute to any of the harm and misery that's going on constantly in the world around us. And while you were practicing, you were actually neurally regenerating key regions of your brain that allow you to develop greater impulse control, attention, and memory. So your practice is blameless. And no matter how difficult or easy any meditation is, just remember how truly unique it is in your life to have and cherishable it is to have a spiritual practice. When you're ready to open up your eyes, first look at the ground in front of you so that you can integrate sight back into awareness. Remember, what we don't want to do is go into an attentional imbalance where sight and thought become dominant again and we lose all awareness of the body, which is where we live so often in our lives. So see if you can bring the body with you its sensations wherever you go.